Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. So welcome to this third episode of The Till. It is technically the season of Advent. Nat, you're here. Peter is not. Well, he'll be in for the second half of the show, but we are indeed celebrating Advent, a fun and always red and green time of the year. So the color of Advent's actually purple. Ah, uh, that's true. I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> and we could act like this whole first half of the episode, we are waiting with great expectation for Peter. Oh, I mean, we are right? waiting for the second half. <laughs> the second coming, in fact. <laughs> the second Advent. So, uh, you know, in an attempt not to thoroughly confuse people, Advent is this season in the lead up to Christmas where we have these great expectations of the arrival of the Messiah, of the um, of the arrival of the Christ child. But we're also, as Christians, uh, awaiting the second coming of Jesus. So there is this also this sense of Advent in which we are awaiting Jesus's return. So Nat. Any Advent thoughts and reflections? Well, first of all, it's it's a really lovely time in the evening. You know, like as just as a family sort of tradition, uh, I've really enjoyed Advent. And it's weird having moved away because uh, it's harder to uh, have on a regular basis when I'm the only one who like, you know, when you live like on your own. But Okay, so here's an Advent idea for you. Yeah, I'm in. So because this year Advent is like so short, it's literally just December 1st and then it ends on Christmas. And so it's the shortest one. It's like the shortest version of Advent ever. So because this year, you know, December the 1st happens to be a Sunday, you could read one chapter of the Gospel of Luke every single day and you would be done on Christmas Eve. Oh, my gosh. You're right. You could have that be like your Advent devotional this year instead of. Instead of the one that like requires maybe some you getting some kind of booklet and reading through it and having some yeah. Q and A, just read a chapter every day uh, of the Gospel of Luke. You know what? I'll take you up on that. That's what we'll do this year. Right? That seems to be a simple way to do it. What I mean, were your um, when you think back to um, the practices of your family during Advent? I bet there's people listening right now who can't even imagine what that was like to grow up in a family that did something yeah. Advent related every night. So. Um, tell us about that. Well, uh, usually uh, all, all the lights get dimmed. Usually we have some sort of sort of centerpiece of, you know, a set of candles or something. It's it's nothing grand, just sort of like a, a mood to reflect. And then a passage in the story of sort of like the buildup to Christ's birth uh, gets read. And usually sort of after a while, we've collected uh, these... Uh, like nativity figures. And so each of the kids gets to open one sort of um, every night. And it's sort of a game of, can you guess, you know, if you got one of the sheep or not? And, and then we sort of end either with like a little bit of a hymn or, or a prayer. Just It's, it's really simple, but it's a moment dedicated to reflect upon, you know, what we're building up to in Christmas, not, this Christmas tradition of, you know, the tree and stuff, but like the true reason of Christmas and just give us sort of like focal point throughout the upcoming month. So I love that. Uh, one of the things that we do, um, and it's like similar, although I haven't thought about wrapping them up, so I might mm. have to do that this mm-hmm. year. Uh, I've never thought about that. 
Um, we talk about, so we, we introduce another character in, you know, that whole crash, that whole nativity scene. There are some, uh, there are angels, um, obviously there, we actually have a star in ours, like a fit, like, it, you know, that gets hung. Yeah. Yes, I like and, it. um, I generally like hang it from the chandelier, um, in the middle of the dining room table. Cause that's where we sort of build this scene mm-hmm. over the course mm-hmm. of the month of December. Uh, and so depending on which character we're introducing, like maybe it's Mary or maybe it's Joseph or maybe it is one of the shepherds or one of the sheep or there are then camels. And ultimately there are wise men, which I recognize is actually, you know, late that they right. come somewhat later. But it's still a part of the of the crush scene that we um, develop in the middle of our dining room table. And we talk about those real people. We talk about the realities of life. For mm-hmm. Mary. What was Mary mm-hmm. like? What do we know about her? Well, we know about her cousin Elizabeth, and that gets us into a conversation about John the Baptist. And what do we know about him? And so this becomes a very conversational um, approach where, depending on the age of the people involved, right, they have learned something over the course of time. Almost everybody has something to contribute to the conversation. And then we read the relevant passage of scripture that's related to that individual. So, like, when Joseph shows up, like, because he's the character that gets fished out of the box that night, Yeah, um, which now I'm going to wrap them up. That's much <laughs> more fun. Uh, we talk about, you know, like Joseph's dreams and, uh, you know, when the angel comes to him in a dream and how, what kind of wrestling that might, must have been. And then we also talk about the things that we know about Joseph a little bit later. And, mm. and then he, he completely disappears from the story. Like, where does mm-hmm. Joseph go? He seems quite forgotten mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it is a really wonderful and interesting opportunity and it's a way of moving through the story by allowing every person at the table to, for their information sort of database to grow over the course of time. Because this year, like I'll expect Eliana to actually tell us more about each one of those characters than she might right. have a couple of years ago because, you know, she's virtually an adult now. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fun. Okay, so who is at home now with mom and dad uh, still doing Advent stuff, or are you the baby? Uh, I'm not. I'm the oldest. I have two younger siblings, and so they will partake. And actually, for the first time in a while, I will be home for Christmas. So I will, I think this year, at least for portions of it, I, I may run in, I, I'll run into the very end of our Christmas Advent and and get to spend time with the family. So That'll be good, but they'll they'll continue on the tradition in unwrapping uh, unwrapping the uh, elements and figures of our nativity scene, and to sort of cycle back to the kings, uh, they sort of get their own spot in the house as they as they that's travel, good. and uh, oh, they move, they move. <gasps> oh, I like that. You know, and I think that's something that that all of us siblings so have always liked. On, that's so much better than Elf on a Shelf. <laughs> And they just sort of cycle around and, you know, you might walk down one day and they're like, oh, they're in a new place because someone moved them. And it's just kind of, you know, it's fun. But it, you know, does kind of reinforce the feeling of them traveling. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to have them move. They're move west, right? I'm going to have them move west across the house over the course of I'm doing totally doing that. Awesome. This is great. I love that. I love that. Okay, so what other. um, Well, when you go home for Christmas, where where is that? Remind me. Uh, well, it's, it's a complicated answer. Where is it this year? This year, it's uh, here in Minnesota. So, okay, not too far away. It'll be cold. Maybe it'll be white. <gasps> oh, there might be snow. So, <laughs> yeah, there might be snow. When we think about expectations, yeah, this is actually the word that we focus on a lot during Advent at our house because 
Um, there are lots of expectations related to Christmas. There are always changing expectations year to year as, you know, certain parts of our family, they get older, they've gotten married, mm-hmm. they have kids of their own. Our expectations related to what Christmas Day or Christmas morning oh. is going to be like, you know, that changes over time. Mm-hmm. There's There are no longer quite as many people as in the past there have been for that hot cocoa and sunrise gathering at the Christmas tree. There's uh, mm-hmm. teenagers are the youngest ones in the house, so they don't get up at sunrise. <laughs> yeah, even True. with the great expectation of Christmas presents. Um, and so the expectations related to Christmas, I think, are important. And sometimes we have totally unrealistic expectations of other people. Do you have any any experience with that where either mm. someone has had unrealistic expectations of you or you have had an unrealistic expectation of someone else? I think the biggest one is actually the unrealistic expectations I have for myself. And that just builds into my character. Uh, but but totally. I mean, well, how are you supposed to, you know, necessarily exactly nail the expectation you have uh, have on it? It's like it's bound to happen. And I've definitely fallen prey to this in all of the above mentioned situations. People have expected too much of me. I have expected too much of myself. I often expect much more to other people. I definitely have a, a really strong perfectionistic streak. So, uh you know, that's something to work through every day. So I like the uh, biblical, it's it's not like a quote, but this, you know, biblical way of thinking about things. Expect always the unexpected mm. and anticipate miracles because with God, all things are possible. I think we often expect too little of God, too much of ourselves, mm-hmm. certainly too much of others. Mm-hmm. And when the people, uh, the first time around, like, right, we, we kind of know what to expect of Jesus when he shows up at Christmas <clears throat> in terms of the incarnation. Yeah. But I am, I am wondering, you know, the first time around, um, the Jews were expecting a Messiah of a certain kind who would do certain things. And Jesus did not fulfill all of those expectations. And yet no. Jesus was exactly who he was supposed to be, mm-hmm. uh, meeting all of God's expectations for you know, what his son would do according to his perfect will um, as the Messiah. No, you're right. And and part of that created a very polarizing character, you know, like a lot of what you just, if we just straight read through the narrative sort of without reading through any of the lines, like, yeah, we realize there's like a lot of hate, but, um, you know, he, he built his enemies as he went through his life. But what we primarily read is, oh, you know, he's speaking to thousands and thousands and thousands. But there's a lot of people out there. You still, you know, the country's huge. Uh, it still created a polarizing figure based around, you know, everyone's unmet expectations. Everyone has an expectation for what, uh, you know, what he should have been, what he was, and and he showed up in a different manner. So when we uh, when we think of the reasons that Christ came and what we're expecting from him. My husband often asks, like, how could people not love Jesus? Like, if people actually knew Jesus, how could anybody not love Jesus? I mean, I understand not loving the church. I understand, I mean, at least the expressions of it. Yeah. Very human and fallen and broken. Mm-hmm. I can understand people not not loving other Christians because we, too, are flawed and we fail. Um, but if you really know Jesus, I mean, if you mm-hmm. pay any attention to him at all, how could you not love him? And yet, and yet, plenty of people who experienced him in real time. Um, did not love him. In fact, vehemently hated him. Yeah. And 
And so when we have uh, some of the Advent expectations, one of the conversations that I always think is important to include in the Advent conversation, particularly as kids get older, um, is there was so much hatred directed toward Jesus Mm -hmm. that a whole generation of little boys in the town of Bethlehem was slaughtered. Right. Like you can't have, you can't have Advent. You can't have Christmas. You can't look at what's going on and not say to yourself, we live in such a fallen and broken world. And yet God loves us so much in the midst of our sin that he would send a savior in whose coming some would die. Like it is, mm. it's a little crazy when you start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's a perspective you don't normally take too, right? Uh, you see the crucifixion, you see sort of like the, you know, the middle part of the story before, you know, before the whole resurrection. And that is an obvious pointer to, <clears throat> to the struggles and the pain and, and the, the death. But, uh, but the, the nativity story is always painted traditionally in such a happy, you know, the choirs of angels sort of manner. And, and, to an extent, that's part yes, of it. Yes, not but, the travails of childbirth by herself right. in a, in, you know. In a stable mm-hmm. after traveling. Which I do think there's one, I know, okay, so I do think that there's one thing about the Christmas story that I might, if you don't already know this, I might totally, like, burst your traditional <laughs> Christmas story bubble. Yeah. But Jesus was not born in a stable. Um, that's fair. As soon as I said okay, that, I was so like, the Cataluma mm, is... No, no, it's okay. It's okay. So, right. But there might be p- people listening right now who are saying to themselves, what? What do you mean he wasn't born mm-hmm. in a stable? Um, <clears throat> so in the days of the birth of Jesus in, uh, in the town of Bethlehem. So it's not like there's like the roadway in and the, and the travel lodge and the holiday in and at every exit along the way, you could, you know, get your camel or your mm-hmm. little donkey bus. And you could pull over and you could get a room in the inn. Okay, these these this does not exist. This is not what it was like. Um, we're talking about private homes and we're talking about people showing up in droves because there was a census going on. And they're, they're checking in with their family first. Uh, obviously, all of those places were already full with other family members. And so uh, Joseph is looking beyond the circle of his own family for a place for them to stay. We're still talking about private homes. Right. And the room which would be the place where guests would be invited to stay was already full. It already had guests in it. And so the room that was available was the room into which the animals were gathered at night. Mm-hmm. So it's still a part of the house. It's still mm-hmm. part of the main house. The animals were gathered in, you and I might think of it as like a slightly lower level garage. Um, and the animals were brought in for their own safety, but also the heat from the animals rose into the house. It actually warmed the house at night. And then there was this, um, uh, well, what became the cradle, um, but was, you know, a feed trough. Right. And that would be between the family room where they would put the hay at night and it would feed the animals. The animals would stand there and eat and their heat would then rise up back through that same trough into the house. So that's where Jesus was laid when he was born. Um, And the animals that would have been gathered in there would have been the animals owned by this particular family where this brand new little family spent that first night. Right. No, oh, that makes, that makes sense. This and is not news to you. No. I well, feel so good because I feel like <laughs> this is like news to a lot of people my age. The 50 and over crowd is not aware of this. They, they still think Jesus was born in a stable and, and it, that there was an inn and an innkeeper. <laughs> it's relative. I mean, 
it was relatively recently that that bubble got burst. But uh, but you know what? Actually, it might have been in Peter Kapsner's class. It might have been where you learned that. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, within the last. So in uh, in the second half today, Peter Kapsner is going to be here. We are right now in like the anticipatory advent of the arrival of Peter. On our Advent uh, episode of our our Advent episode of the Till, um, and so I am going to do what I hope we do a, l- a little bit each week on the Till, and that is kind of make the um, the connection here to the agrarian rhythms of life. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we think about waiting and we think about expectation, I don't think that there's any other word related to gardening or agriculture um, or even animal husbandry that is more significant than the concept of expectation. I mean, right? There's just Mm. so much waiting. Mm -hmm. So much waiting. Um, You know the seed is planted. Mm -hmm. You know the the animal has conceived. But there is a lot of waiting. And and there is a lot of hopeful expectation, but there's also the reality that it may end in total disaster, right? The, The garden may not sprout, or even if it sprouts, the floods may come, or the or the sun may scorch it. I mean, there's all kinds of, or there could be a pestilence, you know, actual pests. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And so we live with these great expectations. Um, and I think that people who live close to the earth, like actual farmers and gardeners, they have a better sense of the rhythm of the church calendar, the church year. And this whole notion of a season of Advent um, is not as foreign to people in a farming culture as it is foreign to people who um, who are really driven by a Monday to Friday work schedule. I was going to say, uh, just throw in here, that was not the first thing that comes to mind with planting is waiting, uh, partially because I do not live on a farm and I live in the middle of the city and uh, I kill plants really well. <laughs> <laughs> so Nat is not only Nat the falconer, he is also <laughs> Nat the plant killer. Yeah. Gonna have a whole list of, yeah, have a whole yeah, list yeah. of titles by the end of all of this. So we plant a garden every year. Mm-hmm. We also have an orchard and um, and animals. And so I think that the planting of the garden, though, is the, well, that and the trees, like, you're right, the, the mm-hmm. flowering and then the, the, the fruiting trees. Those are the places where this rhythm of a, a life marked by seasons is a very annual experience. So right now we are right. in a season where all of that is fallow. There, the trees are dormant; they are asleep. But right now there is something awesome going on inside of them, because the promise of the fruit of next year is already in those trees, mm. and the promise of of the fruit of the garden is already in those little packets of seeds. Some of which we saved as you know heirlooms uh, of last year's harvest like some seeds come there what is produced is so good that i want to preserve that particular kind of fruit or vegetable again and in order to do that you have to preserve the seed Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i just think that there are some i mean we talk about preserving the fruit of the harvest we don't often talk about the preservation of the seed and so when we're talking about what we're planting in the culture If I really am sowing seeds of peace, if I really am sowing the word of God into the culture, it has to be first preserved in me. Ooh. No, you're exactly right. That's Mm. the deep moment of the till this week. That was it right there. If I'm going to be a person who plants the seed of God in the culture Mm. around me, it has to first be preserved in me. 
you're totally right, and I have never thought of it exactly like that. That is a really good perspective. That's why we charge so much for this audio broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let's talk about the the free nature of this podcast and how we want those who are listening now to share it with others. What, Uh, What counsel would you give them as a person who probably has in your life downloaded a podcast and knows how to share them. I regularly listen to podcasts. That's what I uh, fill my car commutes with. Well, you can find us on most of the major podcast platforms like iTunes and Google and Spotify. And my favorite way is just to tell someone about the till and the topics we discussed today. Say, hey, you should check it out. So now this literally wouldn't happen without you because all Peter and I know how to do is talk (laughs) and you know how to do everything else. So I know that Thanksgiving has uh, formally and officially passed and we are in the season of Advent, Mm -hmm. but I want to pause and say thank you for investing your time and energy in this effort because we wouldn't have, well, we just, we wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for you. Well, thank you. Uh, It's been a blast to produce. And always fun to hang out with you guys. I can definitely do all the technical back end and we're working on the talking. <laughs> You're doing a great job talking. Thanks. Okay, so um, we're going to wrap up this half of the till. There is a whole nother half of the till coming up next where Peter Capster and Nat, the Falconer. Are you going like by your full name, Nat Becker? Are we going by Nat? Uh, we can go no. by Nat Becker. I usually just go by Nat because it's short and it's sweet. Nat, just Nat. No, no, no additions. Nothing else necessary. Yeah. Complete package. I like Nat the Falconer. We we'll go with um, Nat Falconer. Which, um, so at some episode of the uh, the Till, we'll talk about why we call you that, and maybe you could actually get the Falconer on. That's my goal. Yeah, it's our goal. It's our goal. All right, that's all we got today on this episode of the Till. Thanks for being with us. We have great hope-filled expectations for what is to come. Up next in the second half, Peter Kapsner and Nat Becker. I like driving in the snow. Snow snow driving? You just have to be on your toes the whole time, and you can't be panicky. Otherwise, you like start you know, using jerky motions. And so you have to be like in this superb state of calm, but like hyper-awareness. That kind of just sounds like a drug. I was going to say, that is actually how people describe like smoking pot. Mm-hmm. Super calm, but hyper-aware. Just don't do it and drive in the snow. And on that, and on that note, we are going to say adieu. Peter, it's snowing like crazy outside. We're projected to get like 18 inches over the next uh, 24 hours and I'm heading home sort of uh, on a little bit of a break and I can't tell you how excited I am to drive (laughs) in the snow uh, with, with all the snow and, and extreme weather, it's just going to be great. So, I mean, Nat, there's so many different directions with which we could go in this conversation, uh, primarily because I, I don't know how in the world you got from this Advent theme that we have for this episode of The Till to um, smoking pot in a hyper state of calm or however you described it. And you somehow, <laughs> Carmen somehow compared it to driving in snow, uh, with which she would know little about uh, being in Tennessee. I would imagine if Carmen got even a dusting of snow, she might melt down and hunker down in her sort of palatial estate with her chickens and cats and dogs and cows and whatever else she has down there. So how, I, I've been seeing, you know, I'm overseas right now. I'm in Scotland. 
And we have been watching the weather report and seeing that it is quite the winter storm warning. It's sort of the first one of the season for Minnesota. But how in the world did you get from the Advent theme to snow and uh, where you ended that first half with Carmen? Well, in part, it's because Advent just sort of leads into the season of snow here in Minnesota. And and more ah. more importantly, the fact that it is snowing at the moment as we record this. And I'm just excited. But yeah. the reason I love driving in the snow is because of the hyper-aware, sort of ultra-calm state you have to be in. It just makes driving so much more thrilling, so much more fun. Yeah. Well, it does. And if, and if you do overcompensate with the turn or with the mm-hmm. brakes or anything like that, you're liable to just go right into the ditch. And from this place, I have no idea how to segue back towards Advent <laughs> at this <laughs> point in time. I guess I did have a question for you when I was thinking about this, and maybe you covered it a bit with Carmen. Is Advent part of your past? Is that part of sort of your celebratory kind of rhythms at this time of the year? I don't know if you grew up Protestant or Catholic or none or how you grew up exactly, but uh, is, is Advent part of your past experience? Advent's totally part of our past experience. We've done it, honestly, since since I can remember as a family. Uh, it's sort of uh, a, just a time in the evening where we come back together to reflect and uh, read bits of the story and just look forward. It's a lot about looking forward to the coming of Jesus uh, and and what that all sort of brings with it, just a time to really wait and ex- sort of like in expectation for, uh, you know, the coming good. Yeah. So you did celebrate that. Yeah, I know for us, for me growing up, I started in a Catholic elementary school. And so I didn't necessarily, we, we certainly practiced Advent. I remember we had our, our Wednesdays that we had mass every week. And I sat in my baby blue uniforms with the rest of my classmates and, and they lit candles. I didn't entirely understand why. And then my parents became Protestants when I was about, I want to say, seven-ish years old. And at that point in time, I, I stayed at the, at the Catholic school, but we didn't celebrate it at all really? in the evangelical free tradition. It was, we would have maybe sang some Christmas carols from December 1st forward, but there is not a lot of decoration. It was sort of back in that season of, of time where I think they sort of identified with the initial Protestant reformers who wanted to take out a lot of right. the symbols in, in the church. Right. They sort of stripped everything bare. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have grown up in churches that are kind of modified warehouses almost that mm-hmm. would have a cross in front and uh, maybe some pews and seats, but there wasn't a lot of symbolism because I think there was this backlash against so much of the iconic worship of the saints or of some of the different kind of rituals of the faith. So I experienced that pendulum swing away from that Advent season. And it wasn't until I got married and specifically when we started having kids that my wife Hallie began to bring back Advent into our family. And I, I will say that when we first started doing it, I still didn't quite get it. I didn't understand what, what we were doing. But I think I realized, Nat, that what I really missed in being part of the Protestant church for as long as I have is that Protestant churches tend to be isolated one from the other. And so one congregation doesn't really have to do with the next congregation. And you kind of only live in your own congregation story. Whereas in the Catholic church, and this is, again, I like both the Catholic church and the Protestant church for different reasons, but in the Catholic church, you're part of a bigger story. You're part of the one sort of Catholic right. and, and Catholic is the original term in the Latin just means universal church. It's, it's all of the people following Jesus together. And so when you're part of that church, you can be anchored by the rhythms of the calendar. You can be anchored by the different rituals of the year. And it's not all that different than how the Jews understood themselves and how they held themselves together in the community by celebrating the same festivals every year, the same rituals every year, the same stories every year. 
And in a time where I think so many young people and people in general have lost any sense of identity because they can't tie themselves to a larger story, when we do these kind of rituals like that, uh, communities are always held together by their stories, by their narratives, by their past, by their rituals, all of that. And, and so I think Advent can be one of those things that specifically in our isolated and hyper-individualized culture can bring us under a common theme again and, and a common experience where we are all waiting together in some of those ways. So for people listening that haven't ever done Advent before, there's, a, there's no right way to do it. It can feel daunting, I think, when you first get started with it. But uh, there are certainly increasing tools out there about how to engage just somehow in the process during this time. Yeah. Well, in, in the previous half hour, uh, I was talking with Carmen about sort of what, what, what I might do. And, uh, and basically, just with the way the calendar sets up, we just might read, uh, just sort of walk through Luke, and it pretty much times itself out. So even if it's just something as simple as just sort of stepping through the story in little bite-sized pieces as I lead up to Christmas, um, yeah, you know, that's a thing. But what we've done as a family is uh, open up uh, sort of nativity characters and right. uh, sort of discuss that as a story as it progresses and and that gives something tangible to hold on to you know i know a lot of there's a lot of pushback against the, sort of the liturgy and tradition and symbolism and stuff but giving something to grasp sort of to an idea or a story is is helpful i mean obviously it shouldn't yeah. be taken too far but you know walking through a story you know with children with uh you know the characters and stuff does help sort of solidify the narrative. Yeah, we, we've set up that kind of nativity scene in our house before too. And then we put Mary and Joseph a little ways away from the nativity scene. And every day in our living room or wherever it is, it gets slightly, they get slightly closer to Bethlehem and, and to that scene. So it is something that when you have those tangible physical reminders, uh, again, I know a lot of people are concerned by um, some of, you know, we're over in, here in Europe, right? And so many of the churches you go into have so much uh, symbolism. Right. and icons associated with them in these European churches. And it can feel kind of dead and a little overwhelming. But at, at the flip side of it, we are, you know, even when you think about us being sort of the physical representation and the image bearers of God in this world, that uh, God is always working on both the invisible and the visible level. And so I think to just keep God in this place of sort of imaginative spirit as opposed to physical, we're obviously not representing God but to have a representation within our finite sort of senses of the story, I think can be really helpful, not just for kids, really for all of us on so many different levels. I don't know what you and Carmen all covered about Advent. It sounds like you covered it. Just give me a quick rundown. What did you talk about? You talked about the first Advent a bit, right? Yeah, we talked about the first Advent, sort of what um, both Carmen and I and our respective families have done leading into Advent and just sort of, you know, what What that first Christmas story looked like. We debunked a little bit of the stable myth. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, sort of just to give a, give, give a more accurate narrative. And then we sort of just uh, set up the story to look at the second, uh, the second advent or the second you know, yeah. event that we're, we're looking forward to and we're, we're watching the story play out in, in expectation. Yeah. Yeah, we learned so much, don't we, from that first Advent where, where God had gone silent with the prophet Malachi, uh, being the final voice of Israel. And then for 400 years, God was silent. And, and Isaiah describes people who are walking in this land of deep darkness because they haven't heard the voice of God for all of these years. And suddenly a light, light shines. And, and after 400 years of God's silence, the star appears in Bethlehem. 
and, and sort of the the climactic revelation of God on earth and Jesus appears in the scene. But uh, I, I think there can be some confusion right now that then that sort of ended everything and it's all done. And yet we live in a profound time of now second advent where, where death has been beaten, death has been defeated. Um, we are people, uh, theologians call Christians oftentimes people of the eschaton or people of the future meaning that as, as we live in the present, we are both experiencing and manifesting the future reality for which we wait. And so that play, you know, heaven being the place, not that we try to get into when we die by working on something with God, but heaven being actually our home, where we're meant to land, where we're finally going to have peace, where we can put our bags down and sort of take a rest. Uh, heaven is supposed to be that. But the, the great witness of the New Testament is that people who follow Jesus and then begin to be inhabited by the power of the spirit begin to manifest as people of the eschaton or people of the future, the hope and peace and love of the future that waits for us begins to be present actually in our lives, at least in part. And so we are still waiting. What nothing is right. Nothing is well. The world, I think as you and I both know, and, and Carmen covers on the headlines quite a bit, the world's pretty much on fire these days. And if we don't have a good sense of the time in which we live, we might get awfully confused about who God is and what's going on in this world if we assume this world is our home and assume that we're still not in this time of waiting. And so I think it's one of those things we could talk about the second advent. I don't know. Are you familiar with the passage where Jesus says, uh, lo, I go and prepare a place for you. And in my father's house, there's many rooms. Did, did you grow up with that passage at all? Oh, it's framed all over the place. <laughs> I, I don't know how, what your understanding of that passage was, but I think for me, it was the sense of, well, I might not get my house on heaven, but I'm certainly going to get my McMahon or on earth, but I'm certainly going to get my McMansion in heaven. I mean, Jesus is going to give me all the best and brightest things when I get to the other side, right? Well, how else am I supposed to read that? <laughs> well, come on, Matt. You're a student <laughs> of the scriptures. That's how, I mean, how else are you supposed to read that now? You have any idea? Oh, well, totally. Uh, but that it definitely is how I interpreted it as a kid. You know, it, just sure. growing up, you see this plaque on everyone's, you know, flower, um, wallpapered walls. And, uh, yeah, I'm like, sweet. I get a room in a mansion. You know, I have something <laughs> to look forward to. Uh, but I was reading an interesting, uh, uh, sort of article and, uh, it was on the prodigal son story and okay. how, and how the father, you know, what his goal or what the father really wanted out of the sons was for them to, uh, leave their autonomy and, and join him at the table, leave their like strive for their own, their own goals and, and join him in a time of celebration, in a time to just sit there and be in community together. And, and that's, that's closer to, to how I would interpret it now. It, yeah. A community where we can live with God um, and his people. It, yeah. Yeah, and that, and I think that's what we sort of long for and wait for, and and I think, especially in American-based prosperity culture, right, where we rip out Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, mm. and that's the verse that kind of just defines our American understanding of God. And I, over here in Scotland yesterday, I had a friend of mine show me a quote from Timothy Keller, where Timothy Keller was saying that we really need to know God as He actually is, and not as we imagine Him to be. Right. And, and I think so often we are imagining God in ways that are utterly inconsistent with, with uh, who God is, especially in this Jeremiah 29 passage where we interpret this idea of, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and all that. And I, I think the reason why so many people claim that verse is they're experiencing hardship on this earth 
but they assume that if they just stay faithful to God, that eventually whatever hardship they're experiencing is going to pass. They are going to be healed from whatever disease or uh, illness. Uh, They are going to get the relationship that they want. Maybe their job is finally going to work out. I mean, this is the gospel you and I and Carmen, we've talked about it at at nauseum in terms of filling stadiums with false promises about who God actually is. And what's interesting about that promise and how we, I think we can tie it into the second advent, Nat, is that that promise was given to a group of people who were soon to experience exile and never actually themselves returned to the land. Like they mm-hmm. never had a home. They always ended up living as strangers in the land of Babylon. And uh, so was God not faithful to them as they were strangers in this strange land? And and that word prosper there just simply literally means wholeness. And, and what God is inviting those Israelites into is in the midst of a foreign land that really was going to be a place of hardship for them in Babylon, he could bring peace in the midst of their absence. He could bring a sense of wholeness, even though they would never feel whole on this earth. And you you then bridge that into the New Testament. And so much of the New Testament witness says that you are citizens of heaven. You are strangers in a strange land. Of course, in this world, you'll have trial and hardship and pain. Uh, Of course, this world is being ruled by the spiritual authorities of, of darkness at this time. And so the reason why we wait and why the second advent is so important and Jesus saying, "Go, I, I go and prepare a place for you, is he is saying that in this in-between time, in between the first coming and the second coming, there is a, it, he's using the language of the bridegroom at this point who is betrothed to his bride. And now if you were a Jewish man, and I don't know if you plan on getting married, my understanding is you have a girlfriend at this point in time, right, Nat? It is true. So so it is it is true. And and so if you were, let's just say that you were 2,500 years ago getting ready to propose to your girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. You would um, you would say, let's get married. Well, I don't know what you'd say. Uh, I'm sure something in Hebrew that sounded like let's get married. It'd and, be a little uh, more flowery and, you know, probably <laughs> Slightly more romantic than let's yeah. get married, right? And so, yeah, something along those lines. And uh, and assuming the person said yes uh, to you, that then you would enter into a time of betrothal or the time of waiting mm-hmm. where your job as the bridegroom would be to prepare the home so it was the appropriate place for the bride. Mm-hmm. And that might take at least a year. And when you were ready to welcome the bride into your home, at that point in time, you would walk around the city and blow trumpets and announce that the bridegroom has arrived. And now is the time for the wedding supper of the bride and the bridegroom. And, I, and you can probably hear in some of this language what this what this at second advent is about is Jesus as our bridegroom is going to prepare a place for us right now as his bride, as the language of the New Testament often describes. And we're in this betrothal period. But where we live right now is not our home. Our home is being prepared for us. And this specific home in this waiting time is a home that's on fire. So we shouldn't be surprised when we are afflicted, when there is suffering, when there is turmoil. But the great promise of the Christian faith is not just that our sins are forgiven. That is, that's part of the promise. But truly the great promise of the the Christian uh, faith is that hope awaits always. And there's always a future. And so we wait in the second advent um, for the second coming. And then all the language of revelation makes sense, right? Where the trumpets blow in revelation, the seven trumpets and everything's being poured out. And the bridegroom is coming to collect his bride and uh, all things are then set right at that point. And I, I just, I can't think of a more important message to be celebrating during this Advent as we kind of live in the first and the second Advent of waiting. So I, I don't know how that lands on you as you think about even your future in this world and making a way in your world. I mean, you know, a successful life, right, is you're going to get a great job and a great, you know, marriage and a great whatever else. But uh, it's, it's an entirely different message within the Christian faith. No, totally. I, 
I think there I think it gives sort of a uh it really sets a a a presence of peace sort of in the future just to think about uh having this sort of culminating in the end in a place where we can set aside our ambition, set aside our own penance, set aside everything that we strive for on this world to relationally, you know, live in the house that's been prepared all this time. It gives it gives a reason for the the crazy antics of this world on fire to to exist without it being totally totally pointless. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, anytime I, I I'm in a church from time to time doing maybe a sermon on the weekend and just doing a sound check, and instead of just doing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever, uh, there's inevitably some people that are early arrivals to the church that I ask them. So you know, give me a question, any question about the faith that you want answered, and um, and not that I'm going to be able to answer it, but it's just a fun way to do a sound check. And the question that inevitably comes up is why is why are there bad things that happen in this mm-hmm. world? You know, why do we suffer? Why is there pain? And, and again, I think this whole invitation of understanding God in this world as it actually is versus as we imagine it to be is, uh, I think it, it brings some clarity. You know, I just turned 49 here yesterday and, um, and let's just say that I can't walk around Edinburgh as long as I used to be able to without getting a bit of soreness in my knees or, you know, <laughs> in my Achilles heel, uh, anything along those lines. And I understand that. And I'm not sure if I have this right, but I do understand most people die. Um, from, from what I hear it's at this point, pretty much a hundred percent. I mean, Elijah to get the chariot thing, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, and we never really heard what happened to John on Patmos. If he just sort of, you know, revelation himself <laughs> into heaven. So there's, I guess there's a few examples. Uh, Enoch walked with God, right. In mm-hmm. Genesis. And, and I'm sure, uh, and I don't understand for sure what happened there, but, um, but something along those lines, but you know, just even, when the delusion starts slipping away that um, we really think we should be able to squeeze Shalom out of this world simply by the physical breakdown of our bodies. Um, you know, it just, it, it reveals so much uh, in this. So I don't, you have any suggestions about um, how to practice both sort of the waiting of the nativity along with the current waiting in the season that we're in right now. We just got a couple minutes left in this, in this segment. Yeah, well, I was actually just about to ask you that. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. You the punch, Nat. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any, I can pontificate about all the theological stuff, but I have nothing uh, actually applicable on any of it. So you have to, you have to roll with this out. Well, I mean, part of it is just sort of, you know, walking through what did happen in the first nativity and then looking forward and, and just sort of, you know, you know, matching it as we, as we wait for this second coming, but knowing knowing that that we're not going to achieve this finished perfect world in the time that we exist sort of helps put you into perspective and just you know outlook wise you know work with what yeah. you have but uh man i don't know it's hard you know it is hard. this whole living for something that we don't have right now is not easy and honestly <laughs> i'm I, I don't know how i'm doing this yeah you know, I, fair enough. I mean, especially right when the messages are all that you should be building your resume, mm-hmm. you should be preparing yourself for success and equipping yourself in this world. And I can think of almost no conversations that we have uh, in school and at church about. So how do you equip yourself to be a stranger in a strange land? Right. right? I mean, what would be the process by which you would do that? Uh, it probably wouldn't look like being involved in a sports activity 24 seven from mm-hmm. the age of nine to 19. Kind of thing. It doesn't mean don't be involved in sports. I'm not saying that you know how much I love sports, but I'm just saying I think 
maybe even one thing during this, the, the start of this Advent season that you and I and whoever's listening could ask would be, so what would it mean to equip myself for a world in which uh, I am, as I said, a stranger in a strange land? What would I have to do to do that? And even just put one practice in play. I, again, I don't know what that might look like, but, um, but that equipping process might be different than the way we so often spend our time. Well, and I'm curious, uh, both you and I have moved and lived in different countries in our life. We yes. have both been strangers in a different land. Yes. Uh, do, do you notice any similarity there having, having lived overseas? Yeah. You know, maybe this is what we talk about with our next ep- episode of the till. If we pick up on this theme with Carmen and the three of us again together is what does it mean to live as a stranger in a strange land? Because I do notice I, I'm always a little bit disoriented over here and I absolutely love Scotland. I mean, I just love it, but because it isn't the place of greatest familiarity in my life, in my journey, I'm always just kind of a a little bit, just sort of one half bubble off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And where did you live again, Nat? Uh, I grew up in Spain for a large portion of my life. So, uh, so do you feel, I I mean, I'd love to ask you again, we only got a minute left here today, but uh, are the States or is Spain more home for you? You know, it's, it's hard. Uh, yeah, it really varies by topic. Honestly, I don't really feel 100% home at any at either of them. Really, I'm just traveling between countries all the time, sort of yeah. mentally. Well, that's an, and that's what we talk about a lot too. Is I think living in two places like this reveals that um, both are home and neither are home all at the same time, right? And, and the transient nature of both, we love them both, but um, but there is you never have a home in one of those places. So, well, great to have the time with you. I can't wait till all three of us are back together, continue to talk about the Advent season. You want to take us out here on the episode of The Till? We'll be back next Tuesday. It's always great to talk with both you and Carmen. You're listening to The Till. The Till.